Well, almost 18 years now, I have been ministering the Word here at Bethlehem, and again and again I have waited, wondering when the time would be for preaching through the book of Romans. I have considered it over and over. I've walked up to the mountain and looked up into the clouds that surround the peak of this Everest and walked away to lower heights and contented myself with other things because it is absolutely daunting to stand before these 16 chapters that have been so unbelievably used of God in the history of the church and think that God would give me grace and life to preach through this book. But in God's patience and grace, it seems to me that the time is right. We're at the end of a millennium, and I am well into the second half of what, God willing, will be a 30-year pastorate at this church, if you will have me. And at age 52, the pace of time seems quicker than it did when I came at age 34. And the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ is more bright to me now, gets brighter with every precious saint who dies. And this book is the place where the gospel of Christ shines most brightly and most thoroughly in all the Bible, the book of Romans. I'm not as moved today as I once was by the tyranny of the urgent or by the need to respond to every trendy view that blows across the American cultural landscape. I'm well past midlife and my confidence has grown very deep that the way to be lastingly relevant is to take your stand on old, tried, unshakable truths rather than jumping from pragmatic bandwagon to bandwagon trying to do the latest thing to make things happen in the church. So I don't feel any need to do that sort of thing anymore. Romans is solid, Romans is durable, Romans is reliable, Romans is unshakable, Romans is old, Romans is thorough. It fits where I am in my latter chapter. Now, I've got a history with this book, and I want to tell you the history. The reason I venture so much personal stuff this morning is because... This book is personal. Paul, there's a lot of Paul in this book. He starts off with himself, maybe. We'll check that out in a minute. Has a lot to say about himself in Romans 7. To be an authoritative apostolic spokesman in the Bible didn't mean you had to not talk about what God was doing in your life. Some people, I just got back from 10 days in England, and... Uh, there are certain staid churches and certain traditions where, like my hero Jonathan Edwards, you can read 1,200 sermons of Edwards and you don't hear one word about Jonathan Edwards. 
It's all about God. That That's overdone. can go way far the other way where a preacher's bringing in his marriage and his kids and his ulcers and his cars and his computers all the time. And the congregation will say, little God, please. Can we have a little God here? <laughs> However, the reason I'm going to tell you my personal history with Romans is because I think it might ignite in some of you a desire to know this book and to be familiar with the God of this book and worship him and love him and enjoy him, obey him, trust him, follow him. I don't remember my conversion. I was six, my daddy tells me. At my mother's knee in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, at a motel on vacation in 1952. All I remember is believing. I've always believed as far as I can remember. I'm sure that's not true since we come into the world bit out of shape by sin. But that whatever God did in my life to make me a believer, he did so early, I don't remember it happening. A lot of you in this room are in that position and you sort of regret it because you don't have any stunning testimonies to tell about how you were saved. However, I learned what happened to me from Romans. I'm going to tell you what happened to me. I don't need to remember. I know from the Bible what happened to me. And as I say what happened to me, would those of you in this room right now who wonder if it's happened to you, listen carefully. We prayed downstairs that at this point in the service, not just at the end, but at this moment right now in the next 60 seconds, God would save people. That's how it happens. God breaks through the word. He makes plain the gospel and the need and the glory and the sufficiency, and he does it. There are four things. One, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 Two, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 Third, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 Therefore, if you will confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord... And in your heart, believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Where is that found? Romans 10.9. Romans 10.9. So even though I don't remember what happened to me, I know what happened to me from the book of Romans. The book of Romans interprets life. Life that you don't even know about you read about in the book of Romans. I went to college. 
1964, thinking I'd be a doctor, maybe a veterinarian if I, my hands shook too much. doesn't matter if you make a mistake on a dog. <laughs> That's really the way I thought. September 1966, in a painful and precious providence, I was in the hospital for three weeks, and God changed my life's direction powerfully, irreversibly. I testify now these 32 years later. He moved me from that trajectory to the trajectory of the ministry of the Word. Won't detail about it, but you can read about it in Future Grace. The point I want to make is this. That fall, I had planned to move into a dormitory suite with three other guys and did. But in January 1967, it was very plain to me, this is not the best circumstance for what God's doing in my life. I want to study. I want to pray. I want to think. And this dynamic here is not ideal. So I made a special mid-year plea and was allowed to move to Elliott Hall alone in a single room. And I lived in a single room for the next year and a half so that I could pursue God and read and pray. And, and I can almost smell it and I can sure see it. It's yellow, big black print on the front. Nothing very fancy in those days on paperbacks written by John Stott called Men Made New, an exposition of Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. And I can remember reading those pages at my desk in that room like it was yesterday because of the powerful Work that was going on in my life confirming what happened in September of 1966 that this is my life. This is my life. This handling of the Word of God is what I want to do more than anything. I want to know this book knowing John Stott knows Romans 5 to 8. So Romans became not only the interpretation of my conversion, it became the confirmation of my calling to the ministry. Then came seminary. 1968 to 1971 in Pasadena and the cataclysmic effect of two great classes. There were more than two, but two great ones. Romans 1 to 8 with Daniel Fuller, where phrase by phrase for 14 weeks, my mind was blown. And then the climactic class called Unity of the Bible, in which Romans 9 to 11 became the substructure of reality. And all the pieces were put in place that have never changed to this day. The great discoveries of the sovereignty of God over all things and the magnifying of His name and the enjoying Him and thus magnifying Him because that's the end for which God created the world. Everything fell into place with Romans being the foundation on which it all stood. Three years in Germany to study, 
six years at Bethel College, over and over again, returning to this theme of the sovereignty of God, and over and over again, watching Romans 9 move into center stage with controversy back and forth about what this chapter is all about. These awesome, awesome pictures of the sovereign freedom of God as a creator. In the fall of 1979, I was given a sabbatical. And I knew what I had to do with this sabbatical. I had to settle it. What is Romans 9 saying about this God? Because if it's saying what it looks like it's saying, then many people don't know the true God. So for four months, I labored. And out of that laboring came something totally unexpected. Namely, the call to the pastorate. What God said in a sentence over and over again, long about October, November, is this. I, the God of Romans 9, will be heralded and not just analyzed or explained. I, the God of Romans 9, John Piper, will be proclaimed and heralded, not just analyzed and explained. October 14, 1979, late at night. Noel was in bed. So was Abraham in her womb. Karsten was asleep. Benjamin was asleep. And God came. And it was one of those times that was like the time that uh, Blaise Pascal had. He wrote it down after it had happened and he sewed it into his coat, and he wore it the rest of his life, next to his heart. Midnight, fire, is the way Pascal said it. And I just went back yesterday and read my seven pages that I wrote for those several hours that night, and it begins like this. I am closer tonight to actually deciding to resign at Bethel and take a pastorate than I have ever been. The urge is almost overwhelming. And by 1 a.m. it was overwhelming. It takes this form. I am enthralled by the reality of God. And the power of his word to create authentic people. That was my call away from Bethel to the pastorate. And then in the providence of God, this church called Marvin Anderson. And I answered the phone. And I didn't know where this church was. And he explained they were in a search process. And Shar was sitting right back there. She's in the first service. She's left. And. Ozzie Nelson is sitting right there. 
I think you're the only two left, Ozzie and Shar, on that search committee. Uh, and I began to talk, and by February it was done. And in June 1980, I came. So I, I date my conversion, or I understand my conversion, my theological foundations in seminary, my call to the ministry and its confirmation, and my turn from being a teacher to a preacher and a pastor, all out of the milieu created by the book of Romans. Now, I've been here 18 years, and I've walked up to it, and I've walked away from it, and I've walked up to it, and I've walked away from it saying, it'll take too long. It's too hard. There are chapters in here I'm not sure I get yet. And went to something else, more manageable. But it isn't as though in these 18 years we as a congregation have neglected Romans or the truth of Romans. In fact, would we not say, those of us who've been around for some time, would we not say it's Romans 8.28 and it's Romans 8.32 that has brought us through these years together. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, will He not freely with Him give us all things? And I have done, and I say this with John Stott, which I read in his preface to his commentary on Romans yesterday. I say with John Stott, near the end of his career of preaching at All Souls in London, that he has recited the final triumphant verses of Romans 8 at innumerable funerals. And they have never ceased to be sweet to him. And I say the same thing. I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. How many funerals have we said that in? I love to preach at funerals. Better than marriages. Because at funerals, people lean on God. At marriages, idolatry can be rampant. As everything goes right at wedding time, and nothing seems to have gone right at funeral time. And the gospel is designed for people for whom nothing goes right. I love the gospel. I love the book of Romans. And so, we're going to tackle it. And you need to pray. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the poet, said, I think that the epistle to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. John Knox, not the Scot, but the New Testament 
scholar, said, Romans is unquestionably the most important theological work ever written. So here's the question this morning. How did that happen? How did a former Pharisee who hated Christianity with all his might, breathed out murders against it, according to Romans 9.1, participated in killing the first Christian martyr, persecuted the church violently. How did that man come to write a 7,100-word letter, about 22 pages long in my Bible, that has changed the face of the world. That every Christian leader for 2,000 years has lit his smoldering wick in this flame for all these centuries. How did a man like that come to write such a thing? And the answer is given in verse 1. Of chapter 1. And that's all we're going to look at this morning. And so if you wonder, how long is this series going to be? (laughs) I have absolutely no idea. I reckon at least four weeks on the first seven verses. But if I see things that I think you need to see, all I've got is heaven in front of me, Chuck. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, there are three phrases there. We'll look at them. And I want you to see the man. I want you to see his letter. I want you to see his God. And just by way of application, right off the bat, you know, sometimes you read a verse and And even before the exposition comes, it says a word to you so personally that it sort of skips over the exposition. And I I just have a feeling that the word that just blurts itself out here is, it isn't who Paul is, it's whose Paul is. You see that in those three phrases? A servant, one, bought by another. A called one, called by another. A set-apart one, set-apart by another. There's somebody else in this verse, right? Paul looks like he's what this verse is about. This verse is not about Paul. The one who bought him, the one who called him, the one who set him apart. There's somebody lurking behind this man. And I, I think... I said to the children in the first service, and and most of them are, are not here, so we're all children now. I said, you can get this. Children, it isn't life. The big questions in life are not, who am I? The big question in life is, whose am I? And I told them to go home and ask mommy and daddy what that meant, to force the parents to come to terms with this. So I'll just press this on you now. You gotta answer that question. Whose are you? Whose are you? That's the issue. We get all, in the 20th century, we get all bent out of shape about self-identity and stuff. Who am I and my worth and my esteem and my value and all that? Man, 
When you read the Bible, the huge issue is right relation with God and whom you belong to, whose you are. So let that be the question hanging over this verse. Phrase number one, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Now we religious types who read the Bible for dozens, dozens of years, we got to realize what a shocking phrase that is. We got to decide here if this man's crazy. Jesus Christ, according to Tacitus, secular witness, as well as all the Christian witnesses, as well as Josephus, said, Jesus died 25 years ago. He's dead. He's not master of anybody. And Paul says, he's my master and he's alive. I am a slave to the living Christ Jesus. So you've got to decide now at the beginning of this book, are these the rantings of a madman who thinks people die and then pop up out of the grave three days later and then become masters of people? Is he a crazy man? Or did possibly that happen? And that's reality. And all the people in the world who ignore that or mock that are unreality. You gotta decide this. This is a huge issues. Is he crazy to call himself the bondservant of Christ Jesus? What does that mean to be the bondservant? It means he's bought by Jesus, owned by Jesus, ruled by Jesus. I'll show you where I get that. First Corinthians 7.23, he says, you were bought by a price, with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So to be a slave of somebody is to have been bought by them. So he calls himself a slave or a bondservant of Christ, which means Christ bought him. And that's what he says, Christ bought me. And since he bought me, he owns me. If you're a Christian this morning, you are doubly owned by God. You are owned by virtue of creation, and you are owned by virtue of purchase. You are doubly your, doubly not your own. Doubly his. He owns you. He can do with you as he pleases. Which leads us to the third thing it means, namely that he rules you, and that what you want to do is please him. Where do I get that? Galatians 1.10 Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, Paul says, I would not be the bondservant of Christ. If I were trying to please men, I would not be the bondservant of Christ. But I am the bondservant of Christ, therefore I don't give a rip about pleasing men. Unless my pleasing them might lead them to please my master. Which is what Romans 15 says. Let us seek to please one another for edification. 
that we might glorify God through bringing others to him. But what's driving this man is a radical Christ orientation because Christ bought him, owns him, and rules him now. And all of his thinking is, how can I please him? How can I honor him? How can I magnify him? And what we want to create at Bethlehem, and I know that the vast majority of you are with me on this, what we want is a church of people who are radically oriented on pleasing Christ, honoring Christ, magnifying Christ, and letting the chips fall where they will, instead of being what most people are, namely second-handers. Get that phrase from Ayn Rand, who wrote the novel Atlas Shrugged, who despised second-handers. That is, people who have no vision and values of their own for which they live triumphantly and are always looking over their shoulder wondering, I wonder what they think about this, and I wonder what they think about this, and I wonder what they think about this. And they live their whole lives second-handedly, always trying to get into other people's good graces and be liked and stroked and praised and complimented and paid. It's a horrible way to live. And Paul said... I am owned by another. I have been bought and I am ruled. And I have one person to please, Christ. And he has revealed his word in me. And that's my life. Let's be like that. So, we're not dealing here with a man and his genius. We're dealing here in Romans with a man and his owner. His ruler, his God. This is no ordinary letter. Second phrase, called as an apostle. Notice the passive verb again. Every phrase here, there's somebody else at work. You were bought and you belong to another. You were called by another. You were set apart by another. Who is this other? God in Christ. He's the main actor here in verse 1. We're not dealing here with the work of a man. We're dealing here with the work of God in a man. What does apostle mean? To be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ with your eyes so that you could be an authoritative, authentic, first-hand witness. That's number one. Number two, you had to have been commissioned by the Christ... To be an authoritative spokesman and representative on his behalf. That's what it meant to be an apostle. Now Paul claimed to be that. 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Jesus appeared to James, he says, then to the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's the Damascus Road. What Jesus did in breaking into Paul's life on the Damascus Road, standing forth, revealing himself in glory, was to enable him to join the Twelve and be a latecomer in the apostolic band, as one born out of season, he said. Then, Acts 26.16 describes the commission. Jesus says to him, for this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you as a minister and a witness, not only to things you've seen, 
but also to the things which I will appear to you in. And then on the basis of the seeing and the commissioning, Paul teaches that he and the other apostles are the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20. The church founded on the apostles and the prophets. Now if we ask today, all right, if the apostles are the foundation of the church, where are they? Where's the foundation today? And the answer is right here in the book, especially Romans. The apostolic deposit was left behind. They died. That's not a repeatable office. That authoritative seeing of Christ, being commissioned by Christ, speaking his authoritative word so the church would be built on a rock that's over. And now we stand here as a church. And if John Piper ever stands anywhere else than here, you go to those elders and get me removed, but fast. Phrase number three. Not only was he bought and made a slave and owned and ruled, not only was he called as an apostle, but he was set apart for the gospel of God. Now, when did that happen? When was Paul set apart for the gospel of God? And he answers that question in Galatians 1.15 like this. God set me apart from my mother's womb. Same verb. God set me apart from my mother's womb. From the time before I was born, I was set apart for the gospel of God. That's amazing. You know why that's amazing? Because the detour between the setting apart and the Damascus Road is horrendous. Isn't it? He's a murderer. He's a hater of Christians. He's a persecutor of the church. That's the man set apart for the gospel before he was born. Which means that right here in verse 1... We're already smack up against 1133. Right? The climax of the whole book. Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom of God. How inscrutable are his ways. How unsearchable are his judgments. Who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Who has ever been his counselor? Who has ever given a gift to him that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. You see something like that and you put your hand on your mouth and say, God, what were you about? Was it that you lost control of Paul? You wrung your hands and says, oh no, what is becoming of the one I've set apart for the gospel? Or are you loosening his leash and permitting for holy purposes 
this man to walk into being the chief sinner for a reason. And Paul gives the answer to that in 1 Timothy, where he says, God had mercy on me, the chief of sinners who persecuted the church of God, in order that he might demonstrate his perfect patience to all who would believe on him after me. He did it for you this morning, you sinner who feel like you have done so much bad and it has been so long that nobody ever, especially God in his holiness, could forgive you. That's why God let him go. So that when he chose him on the Damascus road, it would be plain to all, you mean you're willing to choose somebody like that who for perhaps 30 or 40 years hated what you stand for and came to a climax with rage against your people and threw men and women in prison in Jerusalem and hated your name, that's who you choose to spearhead the Gentile mission? And God says, yes, do you get it? Do you get Romans? Do you get the gospel? Verse 1 is about the gospel. Verse 1 is about mercy. Verse 1 is about sovereign, free grace. Well, we come to the end here of this verse. And we see that phrase, gospel of God, set apart for the gospel of God. Could have said gospel of Christ. He said gospel of God. That's what we're going to talk about next week. I want to close with a reference or a quotation from Leon Morris. What we'll be doing is putting uh, commentaries in the bookstore that we think are worth your purchasing and getting, so you can be studying along if you want to, but this is a good one. Leon Morris, in his exposition of verse 1, closed it like this, and I can't think of a better way to draw things to a close now. He said, God is the most important word in this epistle, about 160 times, 10 per chapter roughly. Everything, continuing to quote, Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated without anything like, with anything like the frequency of God. Everything Paul touches in this letter, he relates to God. In our concern to understand what the Apostle is saying about righteousness and justification and the like, we ought to not overlook his tremendous concentration on God. There is nothing like it elsewhere. End quote. That's true. God set him apart before he was born. God did that. God permitted him to go his own way for a season. Then God, on the Damascus Road, called him. He had already in the midst, I think this is why Paul says in Romans 5, Romans 5, 6, while we were yet ungodly, Christ died for us. In the middle of that, in the middle of that rebellion between his being set apart and his being called, Christ died for him. He couldn't get over that. He couldn't get over it. Christ died for him. And in dying, bought him. And now he calls him. And now the gospel of God is his life. 
So you see that God is at the bottom of his life. God is in the middle of his life. God is at the top and goal of his life, which all sounds like Romans 11.36. From him and through him and to him are all things in Paul's life and your life. To him be glory forever and ever. So here we are at the beginning of Romans, and I believe God has chosen us as a church, called us as a church, and set us apart as a church for this very thing. And I would like you to pray with me that God would save sinners through the preaching through Romans, that he would build his church, and that he would glorify his name.